We are in our second week now, because we hit the snowpocalypse last week, of um, studying the gospel according to Mark. And uh, really what's going to happen this morning as we're studying this next part of Mark is we are going to be introduced to Jesus for the very first time. Mark is going to basically give us the first impression of who Jesus is. Now, as we get ready to study this, here's what I want to say to you. Uh, I want you to think about the, the level of power a first impression has in your life. Um, I don't know if you've uh, read any of Malcolm Gladwell's books. Like, he wrote The Tipping Point. That's kind of what's most well-known of his. But he wrote a book called Blink, where he talks about how we as human beings can't turn off our subconscious propensity to meet people and instantly kind of by the posture of their body, the language that they use. I mean, basically, all the sort of kind of unspoken cues to instantly, he calls it thin slicing, to instantly kind of sum up who this person is uh, within a few seconds of meeting them. And so, uh, you know, you do this in your life all the time. If you met somebody for the first time and they have a, a gigantic flowing beard, for example, uh, you might think to yourself, like, that's a very handsome man. You know, he seems very wise, uh, very handsome. Um, or you see somebody who maybe has like a, uh, you know, like a, a t-shirt for a band, like it's a country music band, and you instantly think to yourself, like, this person has terrible taste in music. Um, sorry, country music fans. You're the only ones who could be made fun of, and it's okay. Um, but just think about this in your own life, okay? Like, you instantly meet people all the time, and you think to yourself, like, Okay, here's who you are, here's your character, who's your nature. I mean, we, we do this all the time. And what I want you to think about in particular is maybe a time in your life where your propensity to make a sweeping statement off of a first impression has actually been wrong. Has that ever happened to you? It, it probably has, maybe with like a, somebody you're really good friends with now, um, or maybe somebody you're married to now, or maybe somebody you're dating right now, where the first impression was maybe not a great one, um, but you kind of have to work through it and find out that you guys are actually... Uh, can actually get along. Uh, in fact, I was actually um, talking to my wife, Megan, about this this past week, and uh, we were talking about the first time that Megan actually met Andy, who, who one of our pastors just did the announcement. Um, Megan, Andy, and I all went to college together, and Megan actually met Andy uh, before I did, uh, because we were all at the same church, but Andy and Megan actually worked with the kids on Wednesday nights at our church together, and she says she can still remember the very first time she ever met Andy. She's getting ready to walk into the church, um, and she's getting ready to work with these kids. And all of a sudden, she hears the blaring sound of a motorcycle come into the parking lot. And this guy with this gigantic beard shows up. But you have to understand, like, this is in the South in a pretty conservative environment. So that's already strike one and strike two. Like, you don't show up to church in a motorcycle, and you don't show up to church with a beard. Um, strike one and strike two. Strike three is Andy removes his helmet to demonstrate that he is wearing this bright yellow bandana, almost like some sort of do-rag, um, as he's getting ready to walk in. Strike three, okay? Um, strike four is that Andy is not riding alone, but his roommate, Matt, is riding behind him, like <laughs> legs, arms, wrapped around him. Like this is a scene straight out of um, Dumb and Dumber, you know, where Harry and Lloyd are making the cross-country trip on a scooter. Um, and she thinks to herself, when she, 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 she said this to me, she says, like, when I first met Andy, or I first saw Andy, I didn't think to myself, like, I can't wait for you to shepherd my soul, or I can't wait for us to be, like, really good friends. It was more like how did you pass the background check <laughs> to work with the kids in this church? But obviously her first impression was wrong, and she got past it and beyond it and found out, like, oh, like, we can be really good friends, and I trust you and believe you and uh, follow you. And, and probably many of you can think of the same way. Like, I mean, again, it could even be somebody like you're mar who you're married to right now, where when you met that person for the very first time, like, you did not think, this is the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. 
So we make these strong first impressions, but a lot of times they're wrong. Now, here's the reason I say all of this. is because as Jesus is going to make his first impression to us, and really not just Jesus, but also a man named John the Baptist, um, I want you to sense the, deg- the degree of bizarreness that is unfolding in this scene. Uh, I think for many of you, you're at least somewhat familiar enough with the rest of Jesus' life that this first impression doesn't come off as bizarre as it's meant to be. Um, but this is a deeply bizarre scene. I mean, essentially, you've got a guy playing dress-up like it's Halloween out in the middle of nowhere. He's dressed up like an Old Testament prophet. You've got Jesus getting dunked underneath waters. Like, he's taking a bath out in the wilderness. Like, you are not meant to instantly be thinking to yourself, like, oh, this is the Redeemer and the Savior of the world. You should be thinking more like, this is a crazy man. And, like, when I see what's transpiring out here out in the wilderness, like, some weird guy dressed up like an Old Testament prophet is plunging people underneath water. Like, this does not seem something like from the Bible. It seems like it's something from criminal minds or like law and order. This should not be happening. Um, but here's what you're going to see is that not, not only in this scene, but really largely in the Christian faith as a whole, um, bizarre aspects of our faith, when we really press into them, are actually far more beautiful than we ever realized. Like, a lot of you in this room, you see maybe aspects of Christianity that on the surface or at first blush uh, kind of seem uh, bizarre or off-putting or you don't agree with them. It's one of the reasons I'm excited to teach this equipped forum on Wednesday night. Um, and you kind of run in the other direction. But here's the thing is what I found is when you push into the aspects of Christianity that may be more difficult to believe, what em- emerges is not something you should be embarrassed of or, or, or avoid, but instead what emerges is something far more beautiful and, and really practical for our lives than we could ever imagine. And so I think that's what you're really going to see uh, in this scene. But as we walk through this scene, what I really want to do is be honest about how bizarre it is. I, I don't want to just kind of like, oh, we know the rest of the story. I want us to try our best to really read it through the eyes of somebody who's reading this for the very first time. And some of you are, which is really great, and we're glad that you're with us. Um, but try, even if you're not, to do that and to think about why is this so weird? Um, why is what's happening here so weird? So that's what we're going to do as we walk through this. And I just want us to ask three very simple questions of what's happening here in this scene. The first is this, is why is John baptizing? Why is John baptizing? And look at this. If you look at verses four through six, there's instantly, we're introduced to this guy named John the Baptist. So Mark introduces us to Jesus through this man named John the Baptist. And we see a couple things about him that are a little bit weird. Um, The first, let's start from the end first. If you look at verse 6, it says, Now John was clothed with camels here and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Um, This is really weird, okay? Like, like essentially, this guy is not, he's not dressed the way normal people were dressed back then. Uh, He's... This is basically like it's Halloween, and he's out in the wilderness playing dress-up like an Old Testament prophet, eating bugs covered in honey. Um, This is not a normal ritual or practice back then. I know you think, like, everybody's antiquated. Like, bug-eating and dressing like this was not a normal thing. In fact, one commentator I was reading, he said, "Um, everything you read here and find bizarre today would have been equally bizarre to the people who see John doing this with their own eyes. So this is just a really weird scene already. It's kind of like, okay, kind of a bad first impression. But look at what he's doing in verses 4 and five. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, which is also weird to me, like people are actually approaching him. I would have been running in the other direction. And were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, here's what John is doing. He is baptizing. He is bringing people 
to the River Jordan, and he is plunging them underneath the water and bringing them back up. Again, if you saw somebody dressed like John doing this, it seems less like something you see in the Bible, more like, I need to go call the police, because it seems like this guy is murdering people out in the wilderness. Very, very weird to see. Why this is also particularly bizarre is because what history tells us is that this is the very first time that anybody was baptizing ever. So historians have tried to figure out, like, was this an ancient practice? Were other people doing this? And they can't find anybody before John. And so not only is he doing this, but he's the first one to do this as well. Uh, sort of. Let me, let me kind of make this caveat as well. Um, he's the first one to do it this way, but the practice of ritual cleansing, it was typically self-cleansing taking place in the city, uh, was actually fairly normal. So, so John is basically taking an ancient practice, and he's modifying it, even subverting it in some ways. In fact, let me read you what another scholar says, a guy named R.T. France. He says, ritual washing was common enough, but these were all regular, repeated washings, whereas John was calling for a single initiatory baptism, indicating the beginning of a new commitment. Now, the question is, why? Why would John do this. This is such a bizarre and weird thing to do. Again, we see people get baptized all the time. Like, we have the horse trough right there, and it's still a little bit weird to me, even every time we do it. Um, But why do we do that? Why did John do that? Well, before we answer the question, here's the thing, is I think what's important for you to understand is no matter what we believe, no matter kind of what our upbringing is, I think that what we share together as human beings is some sort of longing to be cleansed. So you think about the bad things that you've done. You think about the bad things that have been done to you, and there's this internal desire to not feel that way anymore, to to undergo some sort of ritual or practice where we can kind of re-enter into life and no longer feel guilty, ashamed, anything like that. I feel like where this really struck me, I I was reading an article a couple weeks ago about the creation of the movie Fifty Shades of Grey, um, which I feel like there's no way for me to say that without it sounding weird. Like, <laughs> like I, I was just reading for the articles. Like, uh, like it, it, it was just a, an, an article about um, basically what is it like to be an actor and to participate in a film that portrays like really abusive sexual scenes. And it was really interesting. The, the lead actor, Jamie Dornan, I think is his name, who played uh, Christian Grey in the movie, um, he said this about kind of the process. He says... Th- says he was, he was uncomfortable playing his part. And here's what he says. I had to do stuff to Dakota Johnson that I never would choose to do to a woman. He says, adding, I'm a dad. Dornan tells one interviewer that he went to a sex dungeon in preparation for his role and that when he came home afterwards, he was careful to shower before touching his wife, an infant child. Now, it's interesting. When I read that and I see the degree of shame somebody feels in that, like, when I see somebody even like go through the literal act of showering before basically stepping back into their normal life where they desire to be pure, to interact with a wife and a daughter, what seems to me is like this is not a guy just striving to kind of wash away germs. Like he is desiring to wash away shame. In fact, like if you, if you know anything, like I, I was reading an article a few months ago about a woman who's being very transparent about her um, an affair that she had. And she said she would do the exact same thing. Every single time she would come home from her affair before kind of interacting with her husband and her kids, she would shower as well. And she actually made the specific note to say, I was not trying to make myself like physically clean. I was trying to wash away the guilt. 
Sometimes it's literal like that. Sometimes it's very figurative. I mean, I think for many of us in this room, when you think about this, think about an area of your life um, where you've even just had a bad day and you feel like a cloud is hovering over you and you're just trying to get beyond it. Like, you probably have some sort of ritual that you undergo in order to make things better. X number of episodes of The Office in order to make it go away. Or maybe you go on a shopping trip and it's like, you know, for me, I had a really bad day. My boss yelled at me, but buying something new, uh, getting myself new jewelry, getting myself a new outfit makes me feel like a brand new person. We, we, we all kind of have this desire to say, okay, in the midst of me doing something really bad or something really bad being done to me, I will do these things. I will make myself feel bad. I'll make myself feel guilty. I will perform X number of good things for other people before I can feel clean and reemerge into my normal everyday life. Here's why I say all this. It really matters for you to understand that the practice, the ancient religious practice of cleansing yourself repeatedly is something we still practice today, or at least strive to. And so why does all this matter? Well, it's because when you see John taking an ancient ritual practice of cleansing yourself repeatedly and modifying it to be baptized, plunged underneath water once and for all by the hands of another, John is making a startling declaration. Here's what he's doing. On one hand, he is affirming the internal and innate human uh, propensity for us to say we need to be made clean. But he's saying your way of doing it, you're going about it all sorts of wrong. You cannot clean yourself, and you do not need to clean yourself uh, regularly and consistently. Instead, one is coming, the one that I am merely the opening act for, who is coming that by his blood being shed, by his body being broken, through his crucified hands on your behalf, he will plunge you underneath the waters and cleanse you once and for all. He's saying your desire to be made clean is a right one to have. But your propensity to want to clean yourself up, your belief that every single time you do something wrong, you need to go through some sort of ancient ritual of feeling terrible about yourself and doing X number of good works for your neighbors and shoveling snow. Like, it's not wrong for you to shovel snow. It's a good thing for you to shovel snow. It's just a dumb thing to believe that you shoveling snow somehow makes you right in your relationship with the creator of the universe who gave you the very breath that fills up your lungs and that we sin against every single time that we sin. And through this new practice of baptizing people, he is making this declaration. Now, there's a couple implications for this. The first is this is this is why we baptize the way that we baptize. I know that many of you probably come from various Christian traditions, and you know there's different ways to baptize, and I'm not trying to give a whole theological treatise about this, but the way that we baptize is we bring up the horse trough, we fill it up with water, and we duck some, dunk somebody up underneath it, and we bring them back up from it after they have believed and professed their faith in Jesus Christ. The reason we do that is not because it's like a denominational thing or it's like a tradition thing. We do it because we believe it's a biblical thing. We believe that's what you're seeing in this scene, that John is baptizing people underneath the waters of the River Jordan, that the word baptism in Greek, baptizo, means I uh, immerse. That's what the word literally means, as well as when you see Jesus baptized. It talks about him coming up out of the water. It's hard to come up out of water that you've merely been sprinkled with. Um, And so the reason I'm just saying this 
is because I, I know that, like, a lot of times we just have conversations where people like, were baptized as infants and say, why don't you guys do that? Or do I need to get baptized again? And I'd say the reason we don't do it and the reason it's important for you to get baptized again is because, and I'm saying this as somebody who was baptized as an infant, I just don't believe, and I'm not saying these people aren't Christians, I'm just saying that it's not faithful to what you see in the original practice in the New Testament. And so that's why we do it. It's why we take it really seriously. It's a big deal. Like even Jesus went through with it and affirmed it. And so that's why we take it that seriously. Again, that's not really, it's just kind of a side note. The most important thing I would say with this is for you to come to a place where you really do believe that you do not have the power to make yourself clean. Like that's the most important thing, more than the way that somebody's baptized. What really matters is for you to maintain or maybe to grow for the first time in your life, first time in your life, the religious belief that you don't have the capacity within yourself to make yourself clean. John is affirming your desire to be made clean, whether it's something you've done or something terrible that was done for you as well. John is saying, uh, not only should you feel that, but there is a God who is greater than you who desires to do that in and through you once and for all. And that this practice of baptism merely points to the real work. It's merely a sign of the real work that Jesus desires to do in your life. Like, You do not need to do a certain number of good things in order to make yourself right before God. You do not need to make yourself feel terrible uh, for everything you've done before you kind of gain enough merit to come back to God and to confess your sins. Like You need to stop being a doer and you need to start being a receiver. A receiver of grace. And many of you, particularly those of you who grew up in highly religious environments, you're all about doing and you're all about doing the right things to make things better in your life. And you're all about, if I do this and bend this way and pray this prayer and feel this, then everything in my life is going to be better. And I would just say, stop doing, stop looking at yourself as a savior and instead look back to the one who has done the work for you that you cannot do for yourself. The work that John is uh, proclaiming through this original baptism that Jesus Christ has done for us what we so clamor to have happen. It is a longing of the heart that's fulfilled in coming through the work of Jesus. Now, that's the first weird thing. The second weird thing is that Jesus gets baptized. Like, why would Jesus get baptized? Because this guy is weird, and what we're going to see here in a second is this could throw off the entire movement if people sort of misinterpret the weird action of Jesus getting baptized by John. So let me, let me kind of show you what happened. So verse 7, and he preached, this is John preaching, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he, that's Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now it's really interesting. Because John is already, he's not like having a power struggle with Jesus. He's already said here in verses 7 through 9, like, I'm merely the opening act. This is merely a sign. I'm just doing water. It's merely a sign that Jesus is going to come, and he's going to do a true baptism that changes hearts and brings the the dead heart to life through the Holy Spirit. Actually, in another kind of account of the story in the gospel according to Matthew, we get another detail where when Jesus comes to get baptized by John, he even, like, protests. He's like, no, 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 no. And and here's what he says. This is Matthew 3.14. He says, "Uh, I need to be baptized by you, and you you come to me? 
In fact, <clears throat> another historian, he says that this was so potentially embarrassing that the idea that the Christian Lord was baptized by a Jewish prophet in a rite that for others symbolized repentance for their sins, that the early church would never have invented the story. And so here's the question. Like, why would Jesus do it then? Like, if everybody can, you know, like, already this is weird enough, right? A guy dressed up like an Old Testament prophet, eating bugs in the wilderness, plunging people underneath water for the forgiveness of sins. Here comes Jesus, who a core tenet of believing in him is believing that he was perfect in our place. We'll see the entire importance of this next Sunday when we gather. Participates in a ritual that is a proclamation that I am in need of a savior. Like, why would Jesus do that or or go through that? Well, here's why. What you're seeing in the scene is that Jesus is declaring, like, I have not only stepped out of heaven and into history to save. I've stepped out of heaven and into history to fully identify with those I've come to save. Now, we want to be careful here because what we're not saying is Jesus fully identified in the sense that he um, sinned or, again, we'll see the importance of this next week, but what he's saying is, like, I'm not the terminator. Like, I'm not stepping into this and carrying out a mission and it's completely easy and there's no issues or problems whatsoever. What he's saying is... I know what it's like, and I'm voluntarily experiencing the fullness of what it's like to struggle as a human being like you and me struggles. I am not going to make you reach up to me to know what it's like to be God. I will step down. I will stoop down to be like you and know what it's like to be fully man. And it's the aspect of the incarnation that we forget many times. Jesus is not the Terminator. He is not just fully God. He is fully man, and he's fully identified with the men and women that he's come to save. That's what's being proclaimed when he is willing to get baptized. Now, we'll talk about the good news of this, but before we even kind of think about, like, why does this actually matter for our lives in a practical way, I want you to think in particular, like, how much grace is being demonstrated in a scene like this. I mean, isn't it amazing that, like, I mean, think about this. The the entirety of the social hierarchy, which there's a social hierarchy everywhere, whether it's in our neighborhoods or whether it's in the larger world or whether it's in your workplace, whatever it is, there's a social hierarchy everywhere. And the, the flow of the current of culture is largely we are all trying to work our ways up. Right? We're trying to get better jobs. We're trying to have our, you know, even if we have kids, it's like I can't wait till my kids are old enough to, to make it so I don't have to, like, mow the lawn or shovel snow anymore. Right? Like, we're trying to work our way up, and we're trying to kind of do that at the expense of other people. Like, at your job, it's like, I'm so glad I got a promotion so I don't have to do whatever crap it is that I used to have, and now you have to take all the trash, and I don't have to do that anymore. That, that's just what's naturally in all of our hearts. That's the way culture always goes, and yet Jesus is stepping in and doing something tremendously countercultural where he is not making us reach up and work our way up. He is stooping down and reaching his hand down. He's not just reaching his hand down. He is stepping all the way down. The world stops and takes notice in moments like these. It's the reason why even a reality show like um, Undercover Boss, which I don't know if you've ever seen this reality show, like can have four or five seasons of the exact same thing over and over and over again. Where like the CEO of Burger King for four hours, you know, puts on like a, a hat and dresses up like an entry-level employee and like puts on a mustache and puts on frumpy clothes and then goes in and like flips burgers and fries fries. And at the end, he like takes off the hat and removes the mustache and everybody is like, gasp! Like somebody as wealthy and as influential as you cooked 
hamburgers for four hours. What a gracious and loving, servant-hearted human being. Like, meanwhile, this dude is watching this episode of him being humble from his, like, Prada leather couch. He's got a supermodel wife. Like, I mean, he is smoking Cuban cigars. Like, this was like a four-hour publicity stunt. This was not like a radical change in the way that he lived his life. And yeah, what happens? The world takes notice, and it's renewed for another season. (laughs) And you see why it's such good news that Jesus Christ, like, it's not some weird phase in his life where he's like, yeah, like, you know, for, like, a day, I'm going to see what it's like to be human. You know, he starts his ministry saying, I'm not merely going to save you. I'm going to fully identify what it's like to be like you. And we should stop and really take notice. Like, Undercover Boss is a publicity stunt. Jesus Christ doing this is the real thing. It's truly authentic. And it's good news. Because what do we long for more than anything else? Like, when you suffer, when you go through something hard, when you, I mean, when life in a fallen world just, I mean, it feels like it's really going to kill you. Like, what, what is it that you feel? You yearn for somebody who can identify with what it is that you've gone through, don't you? And here's the really amazing thing about Jesus. is like, let, let me ask you, for example. Like, have you ever experienced what it's like to have somebody you really trusted and really believed in and really committed themselves to you and really said they were going to be there for you no matter what? Have you ever had somebody like that um, maybe stab you in the back or lie about you or abandon you in the moment that you need them the most. You ever experienced that before? You ever experienced something as painful as that? You know what's really amazing? So has the Savior of the world. Like, so has God himself experienced that. We'll see that towards the end of the story. Have you ever experienced financial troubles where you've wondered, like, how exactly is it that we're going to make ends meet? You know who else has wrestled with that? God himself, like the God who desires to fully save you. Have you ever wrestled with, let me ask you, for those of you who are single right now, For those of you who are single, have you ever wrestled with what it's like to be single in a culture that idolizes marriage and every single time you're around anybody, they ask you, why aren't you married and why don't you have kids and aren't you going to finally make something of your life? And you're like, thanks for the encouragement. I can't wait to come home for Thanksgiving again next year. Not. You ever wrestled with that before? You know who else has wrestled with that? You You know who else did life as a single human being in a culture that idolized marriage even in our own culture? Jesus Christ. And I think what's tremendously good news about a scene like this one is on the surface it's bizarre, but beneath the surface it's tremendously beautiful to see that here is this man who's coming, fully God, but also fully man, saying, I have not just come to save you, I have come to identify with you. And it's because he can fully identify with us that he is qualified to fully save us. That's why I believe that Jesus Christ is the only spiritual expression. He he is the only way to God is because other faith systems a lot of times offer you principles in terms of kind of making yourself good enough to be like God. Like, we need something more than that. Like, we need somebody who knows what it's like to be as broken and fallen and sinful and hurt and wounded as we are. And only Christianity offers that. We need more than full God. We need full man. And Jesus is demonstrating in the scene that is what he has come to offer us. Now, third, the third and tremendously bizarre aspect of this scene is that the baptism is really weird that he goes through. So, like, a lot of you in this room, you've been baptized. You've been baptized on the scene. You thought it was weird to be baptized in a horse trough. 
This baptism is weirder, okay? Um, this is like, what in the world is going on? I don't think any of us experience anything like this. Look at what happens. Like, why does this happen this way? Verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, so that's what I was referencing earlier, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, let me kind of lay the, th- the theological groundwork of what's going on here. What we believe is that God is Trinitarian in his nature. That means that we believe there's one God. There's only one God. Only one being in the universe possesses the essence of Godness. It's God. God alone possesses that. But God functions in three persons as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. That is what we believe about the nature and the character of who God is. Now, because there's just not other things like this in culture that we're trying to, you know, explain away. A lot of times people try to kind of um, say like, oh yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of like shampoo. You know, you got like shampoo and conditioner and it's like all in one. Like, like anytime you kind of have like a simple explanation of what the Trinitarian is, like you're always a step away from being a heretic. So just don't even go there. Like this is a mind-blowing truth that is difficult for us to even wrap our minds around. Even in fact, a lot of times there's an old heresy that pops itself up in the church every once in a while where people say things, and it makes total common sense, just not biblical or theological or orthodox, where people say, um, you know, it's kind of like, oh, like God's almost like an actor, you know, and so like in the Old Testament, he played the role of God the Father, and in the Gospels, he plays the role of God the Son, and in, in, in the, beyond the Gospels, he plays uh, the role of God the Holy Spirit. That, that's a heresy as well, has a big fancy name uh, that was condemned like almost over a thousand years ago. Um, people, it's like we're trying to kind of explain away the mystery and the complexity of this, and particularly in a scene like this one, it's just like, I don't know what to compare this to. Because here's what you see in this scene, is like all three persons of the Godhead are interacting and involved and stepping into the human story to bring about only what God can do. And so you see in a scene like this one, like, I'll say, so God the Father is declaring who God the Son is. God the Son is getting baptized and commissioned for the task of redemption. And God the Spirit is descending onto God the Son to affirm what God the Father is proclaiming to be true. Which, if that wasn't complex enough, here's what's even more interesting about this, is that the Spirit is described as being like a dove who is hovering over the Son. For anybody who would have been reading this, this would have instantly reminded them back to the creation narrative in Genesis, where if you read Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovers above the waters as they are getting ready to be formed. In fact, uh, in Old Testament Judaic literature, uh, there would have been um, references to the Spirit hovering exactly like a dove, which is interesting. If you read in the Keller book alongside us, um, he even makes a really interesting remark about this. He says that Mark is deliberately pointing us back to the creation, to the very beginning of history. Uh, Just as the original creation of the world was a project of the triune God, Mark says, so the redemption of the world, the rescue and renewal of all things that is beginning beginning now with the arrival of the king, it's a project of the triune God. Come back if you're lost. What's happening in this scene is the fullness of who God is is stepping into human history to fully do what only God can do to redeem and restore and to rescue the world back to the way that it was originally intended to be. Now, the reason this scene 
is particularly powerful and beautiful is when you understand the larger historical context of what's been going on here. Um, Some of you might know this, but this is happening against the backdrop of there being silence from God for about four centuries. There's been silence from God. It's the reason why there's about 400 years uh, separating the end of your Old Testament and the beginning of your New. It's because God, um, he's really the best way I can maybe illustrate it. Let me ask a question. You don't have to give a show of hands because this might be embarrassing to you. But have you ever gotten so mad at your spouse um, or maybe a significant other or maybe even just a friend that you have hung up the phone or had the phone hung up on you? Has anybody ever had that happen to them or you ever done that before? Like, probably. Like, that is like the most devastating feeling in the world. Like, if you're on the other end of that line, right? Like, if you've ever experienced this before, like, it doesn't matter how bad the argument was. It was like, oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> like, like, I know you did not just hang up on me. Like, it doesn't matter what, how terrible it is what you just said. It, like, there's nothing that feels worse than that. Now, what is the best feeling? Is when, I mean, if you're anything like me, um, if this has ever happened to you, like, you kind of stare at the phone and you're just like, you better call me back right? Like, you just kind of stare at the phone. And, like, the best feeling in the world is when it starts to, you know, light up and start ringing again. It's like, okay, everything is going to be okay. Here's what's really interesting, is if you understand the story of the Old Testament that's led up to this, essentially the relationship between God and man has gone something like this. God himself, or God has sent somebody to speak uh, on his behalf, and has said, I'm God, and I love you, and I care for you, and um, here's what's good for you, and I've redeemed you, and I've rescued you, and I've done this work in you, and here's what is for your joy. Here's what it is that you should do. And the people receive this with great joy, and they say, we will absolutely do it. And then five minutes later, they're like, eh, I just don't think that's right. I'm going to do something different. And back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for thousands of years until God, at the end of the Old Testament, essentially hangs up the phone. He doesn't hang up the phone like some sort of petty teenage girl that, like, you know, you said something about her outfit, and, like, that, like you have to understand that. Like, that's the difference. That's where the analogy starts to break down. Like, God is just and righteous, and he is long-suffering. Like, we're talking about God being patient and long-suffering. Like, the Old Testament is that story. And eventually, he says, like, the phone needs to be hung up, and I'm going to stop making calls, and I'm going to step in and just do this myself. Like, that's what's happening, is, like, the phone isn't lighting up again. Like, God himself is walking into the room. And not just God the Son, but God the Father, God the Spirit, the fullness of who God is, is proclaiming that he is going to do the work of redemption that we yearn to have happen in the world around us. He's here. He's arrived on enemy-occupied territory, and he's come to do what only he can do. Now, Typically, um, at this point, I try to be like, and here's what this means for your life. Like, here's three things to make you better this week. And um, I'm just going to be really honest. Like, I have no idea what to say from here. Because, like, these are deeply mysterious and powerful truths. I think this is, like I said, I mean, I think in the same way that a lot of times we're like, oh, it's kind of like this, and this is why it makes it, it's like, in the same way, I think I would be doing you a disservice to instantly be like, and here's a small practical way, because I, I just think, like for me, this is where I feel like I come to the end of any abilities or capacities I have, and I come to the end of myself of talking to you, and I, I come to the beginning of talking to God, and to ask that in his full, mysterious, triune nature, that he would bring about and stir within your hearts um, what it is that you need to believe and receive. 
And so that's kind of my conviction this morning is I want to end this um, not so much with like two steps to have a better week with your family. I want to end this with prayer. Prayer acknowledging, I think, even my own helplessness as a communicator to make this come alive in your hearts and in the areas of your life that matter the most. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to give you the opportunity to even pray with people as well. I'll explain that here in a second. Um, but I just want to end this by praying for you and particularly pray that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who stepped into history 2,000 years ago to bring about the work of the gospel, who is still fully and entirely at work in the world today, that he would bring about the good news in your life that you need to receive. Whether it's something that God the Father needs to speak into your life, that it's something that God the Son, that he has done, that you need to receive and believe a truth of the gospel, Uh, whether it's God the Holy Spirit, him illuminating and giving you the power in your heart to propel your heart to believe that which is so difficult for you to believe and to be changed in the way that is so difficult for you to be changed. Whatever it is that he needs to do, I want to ask him to do. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to prayer in your seat, or you can get up and pray with other people as well, and uh, we'll respond through singing and communion as well. Let's pray. God, we joyfully acknowledge and celebrate our limitations as it pertains to um, understanding who you are and what you do in our lives. We thank you for revealing yourself. We thank you for your long-suffering and your patience. We thank you that there are moments like these ones where we can't give a simple analogy and all the silly illustrations or silly books that say that you are simply like this uh, breaks down and that we respond in nothing more than sheer awe and wonder and worship at the superiority you have over us. God, the moment where we can fully wrap our minds around who you are, you cease to be God. You are greater than us. And you, being one in your essence and three in your personhood, interacting in our lives, that deeply beautiful mystery is what we need. We don't need a simple three-step plan in order to fix our lives. We need you to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so, God, whether that is God the Father, Him speaking and proclaiming a truth in our lives in the same way that you spoke the truth into Jesus' life, that you are well pleased. Like, if we need to receive that, if there's men and women here who need to believe that you love us, not based on our own merit, but by what Jesus has done in our place, and us receiving it, if we need that, if that is the truth that breaks us from an endless cycle of unhealthy relationships, we are perpetually... uh, pursuing affirmation from men who do not give us the affirmation we crave. I pray that God the Father would speak what we need to hear. Whether it's God the Son receiving his sacrifice on our behalf, letting that be the means by which we believe that we are made clean. And stop, I mean, many of us, we live entire lives. We work careers. We pursue an education that is stemming out of our desire to justify ourselves. We take up causes. We give away money in order to feel like good people. And I pray that we, we would understand that Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He has made us clean. 
And I pray that like, if we need to receive that, somebody here needs to receive that, that we would receive that. I pray for the Spirit. I pray for Him to propel our hearts to believe that which we cannot naturally believe. I know that there's people here that, you know, there's aspects of what we've said even this morning where it's like, I would love to believe that's true, but I simply can't. But that's an unbelievably true thing to say. We cannot propel our hearts to believe what it is we're supposed to believe. And so we humbly ask, like, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. Help me believe in the way that I'm supposed to believe, particularly, I mean, not just this morning, but like in the moments of life that matter the most, that you are good even when our circumstances are bad, that you love us even when it seems like everybody around us hates us, that you have forgiven us when we feel like we can't forgive ourselves or somebody else won't forgive us. Make us believe what it is we crave to believe and what you have declared to be good and true over our lives. God, whatever it is that you need to do in our lives, you do. And we humbly ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.